Well, good morning, guys. It's great to see everybody this morning. As you may have noticed, I am not Pastor Mac Richard. Uh, he is actually preaching at a church that we are very close with in Las Vegas, Central Christian. Judd Wilhite is the pastor there. And, uh, and so he's speaking in the life of their church this morning. We're excited about that. Uh, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Derek. I'm actually the worship pastor here. And so kind of used to being in this position on Sunday mornings, just with a little bit of a different perspective today. Uh, but I'm honored to bring the word today as we kind of wrap up the series that we've been in the last couple of weeks called Skill Set, that we have been looking at how to develop uh, certain spiritual skills in our lives. And today, the spiritual skill that we are going to look at developing is the spiritual skill of worship. Now, before you check out, because I think a lot of us would say that we know what worship is, uh, I wanna challenge and maybe encourage you to, to stay engaged this morning. It may not be what you think it is, and I have a very transparent disclaimer for you guys this morning, and that is that a lot of what I'm gonna share today, I've actually learned about worship in, in the past couple weeks and studying and researching and diving into the topic of worship, and so I think that highlights the importance that we're all on this journey together, that nobody arrives at least in this lifetime, about how to live a life of worship. And I think if I, as the worship pastor here, can learn a couple things, then I feel like it's safe to say that we all probably can as well. And so that's what we're gonna dive into today. Now, to set up the conversation that we're gonna have on worship, I wanna start with a question. And that question is, how many of you have either heard of or played the game, the newlywed game? How many of you have heard of the newlywed game? All right, that's a lot of people in here. We're gonna have some fun with this this morning. We are gonna play a version of this game. And if you haven't heard of the newlywed game, the way that you do this is you work as a team with your spouse, or if you're dating your significant other. And I'll say this, if your spouse is not in the room right now, or if you're single, then you guys lucked out because you get to just relax and, and watch at how uncomfortable everybody else gets with some of these questions. And you'll also be able to tie this in later as well. And so the way that we're going to play, we're going to play a version of this game for the sake of time. And I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to think about how you would answer this question for yourself. Not how your spouse would answer, but answer it for yourself. And just think about it, and then on the count of three, you're going to turn to each other and reveal the answers together. Does that make sense? All right, the first question is this. If you're playing this game with us this morning, where was your first date? So the two of you together, where was your first date? Now take some time to think about that. Some of you may need more time than others. But think about that, where your first date was. Lock in that answer. And on the count of three, I want you to go ahead and turn to your spouse, or if you're dating, Go ahead and turn to that person on the count of three. One, two, three, reveal your answer to each other. Now, I know there's probably some discussion happening here. Feel free to continue your discussion. And while you continue to discuss this, I just wanna see a show of hands. Who got the same answer? Who would have scored a point? Okay, this is quite a few of us here in the room that scored a point together. If you didn't get that one right, it's okay. We've got another chance this morning. Question number two is this, out of the two of you, which one of you is the better driver? <laughs> out of the two of you, which one is the better driver? Now, you probably don't need as much time to think about this one. I think everybody's got their answer locked in. Go ahead and turn to your spouse or your partner, and on the count of three, one, two, three, which one is the better driver? 
All right, there, there's still some discussion, some arguing. We may have a fist fight going on somewhere up here. Continue to discuss and argue amongst yourselves. Let's go, show of hands on this one. Who got the answer correct together? Okay, there was less, less that got a point on that one. All right, we've got one more chance. Maybe you're 0 for 2 or maybe you're 1, 1 for 2 here. We've got one last chance. We've got one more question for this morning. I need to pause here with this question and share with you guys that this is a question uh, that my wife and I, uh, we played the newlywed game within the first six months of us being married. Now, Ashley and I will have been married next month for 14 years, and we still to this day talk about how this question was answered almost 14 years ago. I'm gonna ask it to you this morning. And that is, out of the two of you, which one of you is the most handy? So think handyman, think who's gonna fix something that happens at your house, who's gonna mount a TV, who's gonna try to figure out why there's water coming out of your washing machine or under your fridge, which one's the most handy between the two of you? For the last time this morning, we're gonna turn to each other and one, two, three, go ahead and reveal your answers. Who's the most handy? And show of hands, who got that correct between the two of you? All right, I'm gonna say mo most of the people in the room did. Uh, more, more, basically everybody except me. Because when we played this game as the two of us early on in our marriage, I was thinking, man, this is gonna be an easy question, right? It's called handyman for a reason. Surely I, as the man of the relationship, I'm gonna be the most handy out of the two of us. And I think everybody in this room knows where this story is going. When it came time to reveal the answers, Ashley revealed to the entire room that she was in fact the most handy out of the two of us. And I, you know, to make a long story short, we had a little bit of argument and discussion and I left with a little bit of a wounded pride. And we still talk about this and argue about this 14 years later. Now here's an admission that I need to make this morning. And this is probably the first time that I have ever admitted this to anyone uh, my wife included, and that is that she was right. When she, <laughs> when she answered that question, at least in the first six months of our marriage, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was all I could do to hang a picture straight on the wall, and I should have answered it in the other way so that we would have gotten a point. My pride just wouldn't let me do that. But again, we still talk about that 14 years later, but she was right about it. Now, what in the world does this story have to do with worship? And I promise we are gonna get to it in just one minute, but first I wanna start with kind of a foundation, ground level definition of what it is that we're talking about. I know we all have ideas of what worship is. The Bible has a lot of different examples about what worship is, but I wanna lay a, a level ground this morning and just talk about what is worship to frame up our conversation for today. Now, the word worth worship actually comes from an old English word called worthship, We'll put up on the screen here. And worship just means to ascribe the highest value to something or someone. And so when we worship, we are ascribing the highest value to God for who he is. But we're not just ascribing with our words or with our singing. We are essentially living a life that demonstrates the highest value that God has in our life. And I think the best definition in the Bible of what worship is comes out of Romans chapter 12. This is where we're gonna start for today. In Romans chapter 12, verse one, says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. So it says living sacrifice here. So according to Romans chapter 12, everything that you do in your life, provided that it is holy and pleasing to God, is worship. That this is the way that we worship. The way that we worship is the way that we live before God. And so if that's the case, then why are we including this in a series called Skill Set? And I believe that worship is a skill because the skill of worship has to be developed. Now, if we go back to the newlywed game and the, the handyman question, uh, he, here's the good news for me. Now, I already admitted that at the beginning of our relationship, I didn't know what I was doing. I was not a handy person, and yet the good news is I learned a little bit, right? I got a little bit better, and when we tie that into worship, I think the same can be true because if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I think the one thing that we can all agree on is that when we met the person of Jesus, we didn't know what to do next. Nobody knew the next step that they were supposed to take, how to live a lifestyle of worship. We didn't really know. And yet, if you've been following Jesus for a while, over time, you learn and you develop this skill of how to worship. And this is what we're gonna look at today. Now, for me, when I am trying to figure out something, maybe it's trying to fix something at home or maybe learn a new skill or hobby, uh, YouTube is a game changer. Right, I, I don't know how anybody knew how to fix or do anything before YouTube. You had to read a book or look at the manual or something. But YouTube is great. And for me, I actually don't often start with the how-to videos. Sometimes the more entertaining way and instructional way is to look at the what not to do videos, right? How not to deep fry turkey is way more entertaining and instructional than the how-to video of how to deep fry turkey, right? And we're gonna, we're gonna apply the same concept this morning. We are gonna start, before we look at how to worship, we're gonna look at a couple different ways in the Bible that we are not supposed to worship. This is the how not to worship. And we're gonna look at four kinds of worship that we see in the Bible that are unacceptable to God. Four kinds of worship that are unacceptable to God. And we'll look at what these mean for us in our worship. The first one, Number one is worshiping of false gods. This is what we see in the Bible that is unacceptable form of worship. Now, this seems pretty obvious. It seems like an obvious thing not to do, but it actually wasn't that obvious to the Israelites. This is the thing that they, who were God's people, struggled with the most, which is also interesting because it's the thing that God talked to them the most about, right? It's the first commandment that they get as Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, and yet we see time after time that the Israelites get pulled into false worship. Now, what does that mean for us? Because I would be willing to bet that most of us in this room do not struggle with an image that you've carved out of wood that you've set up in your backyard that you worship. I'm not saying that's out of the realm of possibility. I'm just saying most of us probably are not struggling with, uh, with, with that. But what does that mean for us? And I believe that there are things in all of our lives that will compete with the highest value that we ultimately, if we're gonna truly worship God, give to him. And so I want you to think about what those things in your life are. Think about the things that you value the most in your life, that are most important to you. And these don't have to be bad things. Just think about what those are. And I would be willing to bet that it's the things that you get the most excited about maybe the things that you get the most stressed or anxious about because of how important they are to you. Uh, think about the things that you think about every single day 
And I would guess that the first one or two or three of those things that come to your mind are the easiest things that will compete with your worship in terms of where you place your highest value. And that first thing that we talked about is anytime those things get placed as a higher value than God, this is a form of false worship that we see as unacceptable in the Bible. So think about those things this week. If you're looking for a takeaway from this point, when you think about those things, ask yourself how you are submitting those to God in your worship. The second thing is this, worshiping the true God in a wrong form. Worshiping the true God, but in a wrong form. We see a really great example of this in the book of Exodus with the Israelites. And in Exodus chapter 20, we see them receive the 10 commandments from Moses. And the first commandment we talked about in the first point, but the second commandment that they get says this, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And so in Exodus chapter 20, we see the command. What's the command? Do not make an image to worship. Now, if we fast forward 12 chapters to Exodus 32, it doesn't take very long. What do we see in Exodus chapter 32? They make an image to worship. This is the story of the golden calf and what happens is Moses goes back on the mountain to meet with God. He's up there for so long that the people say, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know if he's coming back. We need a God to worship. So they go to Aaron. And this is what it says in Exodus chapter 32, verse three. So all the people took off all the rings of gold that were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, I wanna notice a couple of things about this because I want you to notice what they said. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. So what they're doing here is they are acknowledging the fact that God brought them out of Egypt. They're not saying, hey, we made it out of Egypt on our own. They're saying God brought us out of Egypt and even Aaron speaks of God and says it's the Lord, the same way that we see the Lord's uh, name in, in any other part of scripture. So they are acknowledging and they're worshiping the true God, and yet they're doing it in the form of a golden calf. And we see, if you read that story in Exodus 32, the consequences that they experience. But what does that mean for us? Because again, I don't think any of us are really struggling with having a golden calf set up in our living room either that we're worshiping. And so what does it mean for us to worship the true God, but in a wrong form? Here's how we do it. It's any time that we try to shape God to fit or line up with our beliefs rather than starting with who God is and what his word says and then shaping our beliefs to line up with that. Now that's a big thing, I'm gonna say it again because it's super important. It's any time we try to shape or fit God to line up with what we believe rather than starting with who he is and then lining up our beliefs under that. Under that. So in other words, it's anytime we say, I believe X, Y, or Z. And you can fill in the blank of what that is. Maybe it's a political belief. Maybe it's a social belief. Maybe it's a belief that you have on justice. Maybe it's a belief on what you believe sin to be and what it's not or what you want God to be versus what you don't. It's when we say, I believe this. And so now I'm going to look for a way that God's word, I can kind of line up to fit 
the way that I believe, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna bend God's word a little bit to support what I believe rather than starting with the truth of who God is, what his word says, and then saying, hey, I'm gonna shape my beliefs to line up with that even if I don't want to or even if it doesn't make sense to. And here's the reality this morning. God will not be bent. He will not be shaped to your belief. The Bible says that he is who he is, the same yesterday, today, forever. And when we get that backwards and try to bend him to line up to what we believe, we see that this is a false form of worship. The third thing, third kind of worship that is unacceptable is worshiping the true God, but in a self-centered way. Worshiping the true God in a self-centered way. What does this mean? This, this is worship that really puts you first in terms of your comfortability. Worship that is comfortable for you, worship that coincides with your schedule or your calendar or your goals or your dreams in life. This is inviting God to be a part of my life rather than submitting my life to what God is and what he's doing. And we don't have a ton of time to camp out here on this one, but there's a lot of examples of this in the Bible. One of the best ones is in Genesis chapter four. This is the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, you can read that for yourself, but basically to summarize, what happens is both Cain and Abel bring offerings of worship to God. And we see in the Bible that God accepts Abel's offering because the Bible said he brought his first and his best, which is the way that God requires us to worship, to bring our first, to bring our best of our worship, to bring the best of our life, everything that we have. And yet we see that he rejects Cain's offering because the Bible says that Cain brought some. He didn't bring the first, he didn't bring the best. Cain brought some, and we see that God did not accept that. And what Cain was saying here is he was saying, hey, I'm not going to offer my worship in a way that God is asking. I'm gonna offer my worship in a way that's comfortable for me, what I want to do. And we see, if you read that story in Genesis 4, that this is another form of unacceptable worship. And then the fourth that we're gonna talk about today, the fourth kind of worship that is unacceptable to God. Number four, worshiping the true God with the wrong attitude. Worshiping the true God with the wrong attitude or wrong heart. And for me, one of the most impactful passages of scripture on worship is actually out of Amos chapter five. And we're gonna look at this together. And what's happening here in Amos chapter five is God is really going off on his people, the Israelites, for the fact that they were living in sin and yet at the same time they were continuing to offer their spiritual practices of worship. And this is what God says in Amos chapter five, verse 21. This is gonna be pretty strong. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. That's pretty heavy, and it's heavy because what you see happening here is that the Israelites are essentially bringing the first and the best of their materials. It says they brought their choice fellowship offerings. They're bringing the first and best of the materials, but they're not bringing the first and best of their hearts. And we see this actually get continued throughout the New Testament with the Pharisees. 
This is Jesus' biggest issue that he has with the Pharisees is that they were doing all of the right things on the outside, and yet on the inside, their hearts were far from him. They did not even recognize Jesus as God because of how far away their hearts were from God. And so what does this mean for us? How do we worship with the wrong attitude? For us, this is essentially worshiping out of obligation, right? This is legalism. This is ritualism. This is coming to church to check the box because this is what we do in Texas. And we're going to worship out of obligation rather than truly loving God for who he is and giving your life as worship out of that. And we see this is the fourth kind of worship in the Bible that God says is unacceptable. And again, this is heavy, right? Because God commands a way in which he's to be worshiped. And he is asking us to line our lives up with that. And so if that's the case, if that's the what not to do when it comes to our worship, I wanna spend the, le- the rest of our time, uh, we only have a few minutes left this morning, but the rest of our time talking about, well, how do we then develop the skill of acceptable worship? And in order to do that, uh, if you have a Bible, we're gonna turn to John chapter four. We're gonna look at a story really quick that's gonna illustrate how we are to worship in an acceptable way. John chapter four, starting in verse four says, now he, and this is speaking of Jesus, this is a story about Jesus and another character that we're about to meet. He had to go through Samaria. And so he he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, it was about noon, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So what's happening here is Jesus comes to a well. He meets a Samaritan woman there. And we need to pause here in the story as we kind of look at that last sentence for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. I wish we had time to dive into the full background of this. We don't, so I'm gonna summarize it here. What has happened in history is that there's a point in time that the nation of Israel gets invaded by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians conquer Israel. They capture and carry off uh, the best of the Israelites or the Jews. But they didn't carry off everybody. Who they left behind in Israel is they left behind the poorest, the weakest of the Jews, anybody who was not gonna benefit them, they left behind in Israel. And what we see happen over time is that the surrounding nations begin to pour into Israel and they begin to intermarry with the remaining Jews that were left there. And the offspring from these marriages uh, result in Samaritans who were named after the capital city of Samaria. And these Samaritans were mixed in their race. They were mixed with the Jews, but also the other surrounding nations, but they were also mixed in their religion because they had some elements of Judaism that remained, and yet they also had influences of these surrounding pagan nations, and so they were mixed in their worship. And at the same time, they they still wanted to be fully accepted by the rest of the Jews, especially later on, there uh, is a group of Jews that return from captivity, and the Samaritans say, hey, We're glad you're back. We wanna be part of your crowd again and we wanna worship together. And the Jews who come back from captivity basically say, not gonna happen. You are not our people anymore. You're not gonna have any part in the worship of our God. They say, hey, get lost. And so this starts the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And what happens is the Samaritans go back to Samaria 
to a mountain called Mount Gerizim, and they build a temple on this mountain, and this is where the Samaritans would worship God. The Jews would worship God in Jerusalem and the temple that they had built, and so you see two places, two temples of worship. You have two groups of people, and they do not get along. They do not like each other, and this is who Jesus meets in John chapter four, this woman who in this time period would be considered by the Jews as the lowest of the low, and yet we see Jesus does not despise her. He actually begins to evangelize to her. We talked about evangelism a little bit last week, and we see a great picture of it here. And Jesus begins to talk to this woman, and they get into a conversation of worship. And she asks this question in verse 20. She asks Jesus, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim, the place that the Samaritans would worship. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus answers her in verse 21 and says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He's saying it's neither place. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So what he's telling this woman here is, it's not where you worship, but it's who you worship, and it's how, and he gives us a couple of examples in this story. We're gonna start with number one, and I'll preface this by saying all three of these things that we're gonna talk about together have to work together. And the first thing that we see out of the three kinds of acceptable worship is spirit. He says, you have to worship in spirit. Now, what does that mean? I think this passage is confusing uh, for a lot of people because we misinterpret what spirit is. We're gonna put a definition up for you that'll help us understand this together. Spirit is essentially the sincere commitment to offer worship from the heart with all your might, with passion, with love. This is to worship in spirit. And when the Bible talks about God is spirit. What it's talking about here is that God is not limited to a place, that he is eternal, that he is infinite, that he is everywhere at all times, and therefore must be worshiped in that way everywhere and at all times. We talked about this. This is the living sacrifice that we talked about, but we do it with passion, with all the spirit that we have. And all other religions at this time period had a place and a form that they worshiped. And God is saying here, I'm not limited to a form. I am everywhere. I must be worshiped at all times in the same way. So that's the first thing. The second way he says that we should worship is, even if you're a pretty terrible guesser, I think you can get this one right, in truth. He says you must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what does it mean to worship in truth? We'll put this up as well. Truth just means in the correct view and understanding of God, in the correct view and understanding of God. So this is worshiping him because you understand him in the correct way. And the reality is that truth informs the way that we worship. And I can put it this way, the more accurately we know God, the more accurately we know who he is, the more accurate of our worship of him is. The more we know God, the more accurate our worship of him is. And the flip side of that is the less accurate we know God, the less accurate our worship is. 
if we're talking about, again, spouses, going back to what we did at the beginning, the more you know your spouse, the more you know about them, the easier it is and the better you can express your love to them because of how much you know about them, because of how much time you spend together, that relationship that has been developed. And this is what it's talking about here when we say truth. The more you know God, the more accurate our worship of him is. Jesus actually tells the woman here that the Samaritans worship essentially in spirit. And he's saying, you worship what you do not know. And historians actually tell us that the worship of the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim could get pretty wild, it could get pretty crazy. And God's saying, you worship in spirit with all the passion and love that you have, but he says, your worship is not accurate. You worship what you do not know. There's no truth in your worship. You worship in spirit, but without truth. And then on the flip side of that, he says about the Jews, the Jews worship what they do know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he's saying, we have truth, correct knowledge and understanding of God. But I think you could also make the argument that the Jews worshiped with truth, but no spirit. Right? Their worship was dry, it was legalistic, it wasn't full of passion, it wasn't full of joy. Again, look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. He's saying, we have truth, but they don't worship in spirit. And here Jesus is saying, you've got to do both, worship in spirit and in truth. The last kind of acceptable worship that we're gonna talk about today uh, is really where everything starts and ends for us, but also in this story after the discussion of worship that Jesus has with this woman, she is kind of looking for a way to wrap up the conversation. And she basically says in verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And here she's basically saying that this matter that they're talking about is, is really too important for someone like Jesus and her to work out amongst themselves. She says, there's gonna be a time that the Messiah comes, and when he comes, that's where understanding is gonna happen. That's where we're gonna know. And the last thing that we see Jesus tell her in this story, in verse 26, says this. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And Jesus is saying here that if you want to truly understand worship, and if you truly want to develop the skill of worship in your life, you have to know me. That it is impossible to know true worship outside of Jesus Christ. And so the third thing that we're talking about today is where it starts and ends, number three, in Jesus. He's saying, you gotta know me. It is impossible to worship outside of the person of Jesus. First Peter chapter two, verse five, says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through, look at that, through Jesus Christ, which means that our worship is only acceptable to God through the person of Jesus Christ, that we cannot have worship without a relationship with him. So I wanna do this as we close this morning. I wanna invite you to, to just bow your heads with me this morning. I wanna ask you to think about a couple things. 
I know this is a lot of ground that we've covered this morning. This is a deep dive into what worship is, what worship isn't. I want you to think about a couple things. Maybe you are here this morning and you have realized that the way that you've approached worship has maybe fallen into one of those unacceptable categories. Or maybe you've realized you're here today and you would say, man, I've lacked some spirit in my worship. Or maybe I've lacked some truth in my worship. And here's the good news, if that's you this morning, the good news is that it's really easy to course correct. It's just understanding plus application. And if you're here and you're saying, I understand that the way that I've approached worship has been off, then the application is, well, man, I'm gonna shift and I'm gonna correct that. I'm gonna start worshiping in spirit with everything I have, in truth with a better knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. And maybe you're here today and you would say, well, man, I can't worship because of that last point, because I don't know the person of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, then the news is even better because it's even easier to step into a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that the only thing that we have to do to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ is to believe in our hearts and to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And so if that's you this morning and you want to make that decision. I wanna invite you to just pray a prayer after me. I'm gonna lead you through and you can pray it quietly to yourself, but, but pray it to God where you would say, God, thank you so much for loving me, enough to send your son Jesus to die a sinner's death on a cross for my sins, to raise to life so that I can be raised to life. You would say, Jesus, I believe that you did that. You died on a cross, that you raised from the dead. And today I give my life to you as a living sacrifice. You would say, help me to live every day the best that I know how to follow after you. And, and if that was you and you prayed that prayer, man, this is the greatest decision that you will ever make in your entire life. We wanna celebrate that with you. We also wanna help in what comes next in this journey. And, we also want for you to be able to mark this in your mind with a physical statement that says, today I made that decision. So everybody's heads are still bowed. Nobody's looking around. I wanna ask you, if you made that decision on the count of three, just like we did at the beginning, just shoot your hand up in the air and say, I prayed that prayer today. One, two, three. If that was you, just raise your hand this morning. Say, I prayed that prayer to begin worship with Jesus today. We celebrate that with you. Our tradition is this morning, as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and say, welcome home. Welcome home.